Welcome to Refactor This, sponsored by vFunction. In each episode, we talk application modernization tools, concepts, and advice with industry experts. Good day, everyone, and welcome to this vFunction podcast. I'm Oliver White, and joining me today is Bob Quillen, Chief Ecosystem Officer at vFunction. Today, we're having a conversation about monolithic system architectures and the applications that run on them, and namely looking to dispel some myths about working with monoliths and how modernization options are not a lost cause. So, Bob, thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Oliver. Excited to talk about how we bust some of these monolithic myths. Yeah, so we, the myths of monoliths is what we're talking about. <laughs> I, I have a feeling we're going to stumble over that, but uh, you know, here we go. Tongue. It's a tongue twister, that's for yeah. sure. Yes. You know, be- before we start, can you give a uh, a fifty word bio about yourself for people who may not have met you yet? Sure. Yeah. So, I'm responsible for the ecosystem here at the function, um, developer ecosystem, content marketing, and partners and business development. And I came to the function most recently from Oracle Cloud. They had acquired my last company. Stack Engine, who was a container management product mm-hmm. and platform for managing container systems. We built out a whole range of cloud services and cloud native services in Oracle Cloud. And I saw a lot of that monolithic challenge of helping the Oracle customers move to Oracle Cloud. Mm-hmm. You imagine Oracle has Java, has WebLogic. We have a lot of the Oracle database customers, obviously. So those are kind of the core of the I'll say legacy, but the traditional Oracle customers and moving them in the cloud was very difficult. And there was a lot of lift and shift and migration that was trying to be done, but we talked a lot about move and improve. When I left Oracle, I had worked with Modi previously. Uh, we worked together at EMC. He actually acquired one of my other previous startups. And um, so we had worked together and we kind of connected on this common view of the need in the marketplace, this next wave of moving more globes to the cloud. There's the cloud native side, the greenfield work that's being done. And mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of a known quantity, but this how you move and build best practices and make it easier for enterprises and customers to move these more traditional applications into the cloud is a challenge. It's huge. It's a huge opportunity to kind of engage with the marketplace and get this next wave of optimization and modernization happening. So mm-hmm. This kind of plays into the open conversation about monolith versus microservices, and it seems like now we sh- we can begin to think of the term monolithic application differently, so not a lost cause. It doesn't have to be microservices necessarily, and there's options, and I think that those developments are, are new to a lot of people, and uh, this is probably where these myths come in. So. In a nutshell, what should we? How should we be thinking about a monolithic application? Yeah, and I think when we look at monolithic applications, it's, it's an architectural sort of characteristic, mm-hmm. and how they were built for in the last right, ten to twenty years. There was a a pattern uh, that was built around the application server construct. Where the business logic was all embedded within that middle layer of the application, and so that's actually a, a you know a key part of what made these enterprises successful and they built a lot of their backend applications, their business backends, their supply chain, their order processing. You see it across, you know, a range of very large organizations. And mm-hmm. even now we're working with a lot of uh, first generation cloud vendors and cloud companies who 
moved their applications or built an original application in the cloud maybe five, seven, ten years ago. And those monoliths are now looking to be modernized and take advantage of this new microservice environment. So the pattern is not a good or bad thing because there's still some reasons why certain kind of use cases should use a monolith. Um, mm. But as you're looking to you know, look at scalability, take advantage of the cloud, it's pretty clear this next set of uh, cloud native best practices require you to take that monolithic application and begin to modernize it towards this new um, set of capabilities from containers to serverless to Kubernetes to all the CI, CD, container security, all the new things that are being implemented that are available in the cloud, like the scale and be more agile, et cetera. And there's a lot of confusion over the last 20 years because modernization is not a new thing that's been going on since even before monolith, even <laughs> back in the mainframe days. You know? So modernization has a lot of has confused a lot of people, which has led to this whole question about, you know, is it a lost cause? Should I even try to do it? Mm-hmm. And uh, we talk about the three, the, the seven R's, or there's many, many R's around um, right. <laughs> modernization. So, from you know rewriting to refactoring to re, you know to retiring, and every time I look, there's a new R in there too. So there's a lot of confusion that's put into the marketplace, and and sometimes people have given up. I think that's kind of the issue. Um, and part of our message out there is that there's new new techniques. You think about just AI automation, machine learning, and all the learning that's gone into and tech has gone into uh, apps in the last 10 years. We need to apply a lot of that tooling and a lot of the best practices that have happened from domain-driven design and from how you do this on a manual basis. And then begin to automate that and use a lot of these Mm -hmm. tools. And that's really where our view function has applied itself to look at that business logic part of the monolith itself. So I think that's that's why we're trying to you know shake shake the industry up and and wake them up and say hey you know it's not a lost cause there's new ways to do it and um, let's start trying those and and start looking at how we actually move this part of the industry forward. So. All right, thanks for that. So let's start with uh, the first myth of the monolith, which is mm-hmm. what we've just been saying. <laughs> right. Mono- modernizing your monolith is not a lost cause. Can you develop that a little bit more? Sure. Yeah. So I kind of hit on kind of that as I, as I led into it. And it's kind of an overall theme is that as we look at all the complexity that people have kind of laid on top of modernization, there's been a lot of fits and starts. People have tried to do this on a manual basis using domain-driven design and event storming. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's led to some very good best practices that are all very manual, very people-intensive architects in a room, and, you know, putting sticky notes on a board. Yeah. So you know, now, so the opportunity is how do we improve on that? How do we build on that? How do we understand that business logic is really the key here? If we, we actually bust that open and begin to decompose it after busting myths for busting monoliths too, and start to, that, that opens up so many different things. We can move into cloud native architectures. We can start to decompose our database. We can build micro front ends. But really we talk about that business logic is the first place to go and to, to now open people's minds up around, let's apply new techniques, new technology. I, we see there's a lot of reticence to do this. Sometimes there's a great lot of skepticism because mm-hmm. people have tried it and they failed. And I think we just finished up a survey where 79% of application modernization projects have failed. And that's actually a pretty big number. And it creates a lot of um, like I said, skepticism and people sort of, you know, waiting to be have this proven to them. And I think what we hear as we work with customers that the first thing they tell us as they complete 
um, their project is that number one, hey, this really works. Mm-hmm. And, and that's exciting things. And, and that's the message we're trying to get out is try this new tech. It's going to move things along. It's going to open up, be a catalyst for modernization. That's what we're trying to actually uh, provide here. Yeah, kind of doing our best to remove manual, long taking manual efforts with a, mm-hmm. a bunch of people in a room with stale donuts and getting cold <laughs> coffee and so on. Absolutely. Um, and, go ahead, please. I was going to say, yeah, and that one of the byproducts of a series of failures and a and no clear uh, methodology to do mm-hmm. this that are, that are otherwise expensive or having to outsource it to very expensive contracts kind of led to the next myth too, which is that people start just lifting and shifting or, or kicking the can down the road, either not doing it all or maybe trying to do migration. And that's really, you know, that leads us to the next myth. Myth number two of the monolith. Right. Uh, yeah. Just because you've, you've moved some stuff to the cloud does not mean that you've modernized. Correct. And I think that's, like I said, all the frustration, all the failures up to date have uh, really led to people saying, well, I'm just going to lift and shift it. It's, it's simple. There's a, a clear path to do a, a migration. And then some people, you know, you know, mm-hmm. clean their hands of the whole process and they stop there. So what we're trying to also then begin to open minds up and say that migration is not modernization. As you lift and shift, it, you should think of modernization as, as a broader strategy and migration could be part of that. There's nothing wrong with migrating to the cloud, but don't just stop there. So, you know, the fact that migration does not equal modernization is a myth we're trying to bust into this this mindset. And it's super interesting. I think and it, it, it kind of surprised me too over my uh, two plus years now at Vfunction is that there's a large number of companies that have done that lift and shift. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe they've even built a genuine application in the cloud several years ago. And it, that is still a monolith. And now these folks are in the cloud and now they're looking to modernize. And that's a big part of where we see the market is today. Now, migration can have benefits. You know, there's DevOps benefits, there's some cost benefits, but still monolith in the cloud is still monolith. You haven't really changed anything architecturally. If you want to scale it, you got to scale it vertically or buy a whole nother system. So you're, mm-hmm. many customers are redlining um, their CPU memory and just running that at a constant level. There's no elasticity, there's no scalability, mm-hmm. and um, the agility you, you're, you're supposed to have cloud native is not there. So there's a lot of lost, kind of lost opportunity, a lot of regrets, we call it like lift and shift regret or yeah. <laughs> migration remorse. Lift and shift, migration remorse, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, so. you, by moving a monolith into the cloud, you're actually introducing new problems that you didn't have before when it was on a mainframe somewhere. Or yeah. in the server room. No, and it, so the lift and shift and, regret and more, is usually is it is it mainly that cost efficiency is is identified? Is that one of the primary drivers? Well, there's there's a component to that where your your costs are rising on the cloud side and it was supposed to be cheaper, but now it's more expensive. That's mm-hmm. one element. But you know, a lot of it comes down to you know engineering agility, more release cycles, being able to respond to features on a more active basis. Mm -hmm. Application owners are coming to us that are trying to get more business agility and have more more scalability. I mean, you can't really adjust for seasonality. You can't adjust for what happened with the pandemic and COVID. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, all your customers are coming in virtually, and it changes the dynamic. You want to be able to scale certain parts of your application. If it's a monolith, 
got to scale the whole thing. It's very expensive, and it's not very intelligent how you can orchestrate that, bring it up, bring it down, and take advantage of all that built-in you know, value, the elasticity of the cloud. So the more you modernize, the more you take advantage of the cloud. That's another one of our themes here. And um, the people that move to the cloud, after a couple of years, they either see you know, one or more of these issues in terms of you know, lack of agility, technical debt continues to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, they can't innovate. They can't release fast. And, you know, the business suffers. So people suffer too. You know, you're still, you, hey, I'm in the cloud, but I'm still trying to maintain this monolith. So um, it does draw down also on the people side of things too, culturally. So you mentioned that, you know, mi- migrate what you can uh, in, to a certain mm-hmm. extent uh, where it makes sense and costs aren't getting out of control and you're not dealing with even mm-hmm. worse problems than you had before. You mentioned that this is part of a, a larger strategy, and mm-hmm. that sounds like you need to get buy-in from a lot of different teams and, and executive mm-hmm. sponsorship and so on. That seems to be a perceived a challenge for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Why don't you tell us why that's uh, why it shouldn't be that that hard anymore? <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good lead-in because the uh, so as we start to look at, there's a growing demand for application modernization. We kind of established people think it's hard, but I think what we've seen over the last couple of years, there's a tipping point with the technical debt they're carrying, whether in the cloud or on-prem. So what's what's holding people up? And another part of our, our research we just completed was the fact that, you know, what's what are some of the biggest holdups of having a successful application modernization project and what kind of what's stopping people from getting going. And across the board, it was the inability to build an accurate business case mm-hmm. for application modernization. And it's kind of, you know, if you take a think of a model as it's, it's a ball, ball of mud, it's a tangled ball of string, it's really hard to deal with by complexity there. Sometimes it's, it's just hard to actually accurately say how long it's going to take, how am I going to mm-hmm. do it, how many people do I need, what is the cost, et cetera. And so we, we've tried to put together much more data to drive that and create, help people create data-driven plans. We say, you gotta have data, you gotta do assessment upfront, analyze, get the data, get the metrics, get the before and after so you can begin to talk about kind of what you're trying to do. And um, we just released a, a new product about a month ago called Assessment Hub and really is focused on, on that particular problem set, which is building up the data around complexity, around risk, and using those deep metrics, those calculations that we're doing and we're doing that on a very dependency-driven basis, um, mm-hmm. looking at communities and dependency change, and clusters of activity and entanglement and modularity, and rolling those up into a technical debt score. All that data provides a very clear path of what are the what are the benefits from a TCO perspective, kind of before and after. We identify even the top ten classes to go after, mm-hmm. and these are very very important elements to kind of build a much more grounded plan for modernization. And it might tell you that this is a very complex app. It's going to take you a while. Mm-hmm. Maybe that that indicates you may want to then you know iterate through there and pick one or two out. Don't do it as a big bang. Do it on an iterative basis or selective basis. And we're seeing that also happen with a lot of customers who are uh, maybe pulling one or two services out of their monolith, maybe leaving some behind, but they have a clear idea that there's they've done the analysis and know these are the things you want to do up front. And this creates a much mm-hmm. clearer path and a way to communicate between the technical side, the architect side, and the decision maker side who has the budget. So you gotta be able to say, you know, here's the clear data, let's have a, a common language for that and build it around real data, which says, this is the complexity, this is the problems we're gonna actually 
encounter and compare that on an app by app basis too. So mm -hmm. maybe I have 20 apps and I want to do these five, which ones should I do first, second, third, where I'm going to have my biggest business bang for the buck, which the customer can help us with and understand that. But also then what's going to take time from a technical perspective and from a modernization perspective. So. so it's fair to say that executive teams are really looking for concrete Mm -hmm. actions or actionable areas so that includes project length that includes mm -hmm. identifying how much technical debt is really there how it hinders yeah. uh, innovation and uh looking looking at a score so that you can begin to prioritize like you said maybe one app is incredibly complex and it might not be mm -hmm. worth going after in in full all all at once yeah, I mean, if you think about debt, similar to financial debt, I mean, you get a bank statement, you get a credit card statement, you kind of know how much debt you're carrying. Mm -hmm. You could choose not to look at it, but <laughs> in but in the case of technical debt, it's kind of you know it's there and it's weighing down on you. You could you could feel it and all the different symptoms of, you know, mm -hmm. we mentioned slow agility, costs are going up, I can't release fast enough, my cut, even my. My developers are getting demoralized because it's just right. so hard to work right. on. I'm just, all this debt is pulling us down. So you're not getting a monthly statement telling you what it is. This actually provides that, that monthly statement mm -hmm. to let you say, here's the numbers, here's what you're carrying, and here's how you compare it. And here's here's some ways to fix it. And that's the other thing mm -hmm. that's, that's important is just be able to be actionable, like you said, mm -hmm. and um, and lead that. You know, If you do want to go there, go into the modernization with your eyes wide open and knowing having a plan in advance that helps you um, be data-driven and, and kind of aware of what you're going to be uh, focusing on. So, Yeah, so what if somebody has two apps, one of them looks to be very, uh, in fact, not very complex, not carrying terribly much technical debt, and another mm -hmm. one is just, uh, you know, mired mm -hmm. and, and one of the worst anyone's ever seen and so on. You know, I believe there's another myth that we can mention mm -hmm. now, which is, <laughs> yeah. you know, all monoliths are created equal. But in fact, we've seen across our customers that some of some monoliths mm -hmm. are on mainframes, some of them are in the cloud. So yeah. all monoliths are not created equal. And uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about sure. how yeah. how this is a, yeah. a myth for engineers. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people say that you know, they look at the, all their monoliths and this is the impossible job to actually prioritize and work this through. But in, in reality, as you get into it, you start looking at one, the business relevancy of each of these. So what, you know, what is the engineering load? What's the feature backload? How many bugs do I have? How many new feature requests? How long is it mm -hmm. taking? You can kind of get a sense that, you know, the, just the activity around business activity around applications and even the size of the team begins to separate some applications from others and you know through that scoring and through that stacking you begin to see that there's maybe a large part of your applications are, are business critical your team's still dedicated to it you have a backlog you have work you want to do that's not being met and features aren't being delivered as quickly as possible so there's a, a business prioritization um, that, that we actually see upfront or in parallel to a technical and, and technical debt evaluation. The, um, the idea of understanding and measuring technical debt using risk and complexity and building up those measurements then could be laid on top of that to understand that if it's highly business critical mm -hmm. and there's a lot of technical and there's a certain amount of complexity, but not too much, you can really quickly modernize those and automation could be a quick answer for those. And sometimes that could be a, a very quick run. And we see working with some customers, they have very, some monoliths, but they're very simple monoliths 
um, but they just they haven't been able to to see through them. Once we actually mm -hmm. provide that visibility and that complexity analysis, looking at the dependencies, it could be a straight line through. There's other ones that are much more complex, you know, millions and millions of lines of code, thousands of classes, high complexity, a lot of entanglement. The risk we talk about is around dependency change. So I'm, if I have a change right. here, you know, what's the possibility that change is going to happen and affect something downstream? So automation could help untangle those and mm -hmm. pull out the, uh, the appropriate amount of uh, services that are that could be decomposed. But you want to do that probably more on a selective and iterative basis. And that's the other thing we recommend is that for a very, very complex application, pick out the services that are most business critical within that application. Most architects know what they are. Um, they can stack rank that within the monolith and do that. So for very complex one, we're seeing an iterative approach and pulling out one or two services at a time. You might leave the other ones behind. You may end up with just a set of, you know, many services. And you're not even going to go to a microservice architecture, and that might be um, sufficient for what you're doing over time, too. So, so I think there's ways you need to prioritize it from a business perspective, and also then using that information to help inform on the technical side. Technical side could tell you how long it's going to take, and also what approach you should use, which then drives a more accurate business case, also. So this has, it sounds like uh, the the strangler fig pattern is is mm -hmm. something that we oh. we often we recommend and and also see our yeah. our clients using. Um, yeah, and this a, this is a, a, a very yeah. a very successful way to at least A B test your your mm -hmm. new proposed architecture and test performance with the old service being you know traffic being split between one service in the cloud one yeah. service or rather one monolith mm -hmm. somewhere and a decoupled service elsewhere, mm -hmm. ideally in the it's, cloud. Yeah, and, and that, that, that's a great point. It's, it's also a perfect example of a technique that's been established. You know, Martin Fowler and all the folks who have been working on monolithic design and re-architect mm -hmm. refactoring processes and patterns and practices uh, for the last 10, 15 years. These are documented manual processes. Now the automation has come into play where I can actually begin to use AI, machine learning, a lot of visibility, a lot of observability, mm. take all those, those tools that have been out there, apply that to you know, services like AWS, um, refactor spaces, which actually helps automate some of that process too and um, automate the straggling pattern from an infrastructure perspective. So how do I load balance? How do I shift the networking load, et cetera, and do this in a very consistent and systematic way? So a lot of these features and techniques are coming together and we're seeing you know, all of them accelerating the process, automating it, and then pushing what has been a very kind of stagnant part of the industry. Well-defined from a manual perspective, best practices are there, they're documented. Now they're being embodied in, in a lot of automation and a lot of tooling, and that's helping this take off at the next level. So, mm -hmm. earlier you you mentioned um, first generation cloud based applications that are that were actually you know pushed into the world as a monolith, mm -hmm. maybe may right. due to you know they wanted to get this app into the world as quickly as possible to attract investment mm -hmm. or, or whatever whatever the cause may be. And it's interesting because one of the myths that we want to dispel is that monoliths are not an on-premise problem only. And mm -hmm. in fact, if you're, if you're struggling with a monolith in the cloud, then you may in fact have a, a harder time wrapping your arms around modernization. Yeah, the, um, I think what we found is that there's a, 
you know, equivalent amount of interest for folks who've already done either they lifted and shifted mm-hmm. or they've been in the cloud five, 10 years and they have a monolith or an architecture that's semi-monolithic <laughs> and they want to now modernize that. The proximity to the services that are in the cloud, I think is also large part of the draw here is that I have all the issues I had with the monolith before in terms of mm-hmm. you know agility and scalability and all those things. But I'm so close to being able to turn on a, a container service, a Kubernetes service, mm. to do some elasticity, do some orchestration, to use all those components. Typically, these customers have other applications that are using a, some CI/CD and a lot of DevOps capabilities. A lot of the container security has gotten so mm. much better that you want to take advantage of all these capabilities and mm. plug your monolith into that set of engineering and software engineering tooling, the modern tooling. And also have consistent tooling because you don't want to have monolithic tooling over here, which is what I used to use, and also have the container uh, DevOps and cloud native tooling over on the other side. So bringing those together, it really helps to optimize an engineering organization, but also then begins to everything can start working together on a much more clean basis. It moves these these products and these uh, these applications into a whole new realm, and you know, I think the uh, until they do that, you're basically set with like, in order to scale, I've got to buy you know bigger and bigger images. The cloud providers also are getting more and more interested in getting people to you know plug into these these services too, mm. um, because uh, if you're just using you know CPU memory and you're a data center in the cloud, you actually may be more mobile and be able to shift to a, a cheaper service somewhere, where the competitive nature of you know, serverless capability, you know, the, mm-hmm. the container services, who has the best Kubernetes services orchestration, all the open source tooling that's now available out there. Those are ways for cloud providers to also take advantage of their best practices and all their advantages and competitive differentiation and pull in these customers further. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think both the customers are wanting to do it now and also the cloud providers too. So, and the fact that you know, it kind of sounds like an on-premise problem. And there's still a lot of stuff left on-premise that needs to move to the cloud. But also there's there's a many models that are in the cloud already. And uh, we that's a myth that I think we need that uh, customers have to actually, you know, help me understand that. Don't just look on-prem, help me solve my problems in the cloud. Cause I'm, I'm so close to being able to take advantage of the rest of the cloud, but I just can't do it now when I'm ready. So I think it's kind of a fun part of the market. So. Yeah, yeah, that, that sounds, uh, it sounds intriguing. It's interesting to hear these stories. Let's move on to myth number six, which is monolithic dependencies are impossible to untangle. Now, you you touched on this a little earlier about using AI and automation to do what is pretty much infeasible from a mm-hmm. manual human perspective. But that's that that's what plays into the complexity of mm-hmm. of understanding technical debt. Why, why is it perceived that, you know, dependencies, uh, you know, contain in a big ball of mud or spaghetti, whichever uh, yep. <laughs> you want to use, why, why is it perceived that these are impossible things to deal with? Yeah, the uh, every time I, I, I go out fishing and I get one of um, I do a lot of fishing and I get these like spooling disasters where all this line comes out, or I get this huge tangles. And I'm spending a half hour trying to untangle these things. Eventually, I just cut it and start all over again. And mm. it reminds me of Monolos, the, uh Or anytime you've done holiday lights, you take them out of the box. Yeah. And <laughs> Why didn't I actually fold them up nicely and just spend all your well, time? Well, you did, trying to but do it? that's what happens. <laughs> yeah. 
and then I pull the wrong side and it never comes out the same way. So there's so many good uh, entanglement uh, metaphors out there, but, and they all kind of stick in your mind in different ways. Sometimes it's not your fault. And I think that's one of the things we've seen with architects and developers is that with monoliths, sometimes they're 10, 15, 20 years old, and you have inherited them. You come into the organization. Now you're trying to understand it. So you need a way to view the application in a way that helps you understand it. You you have a good sense of the code. You understand how it works. You kind of understand how the code looks. Mm-hmm. But architecturally, what was going through people's minds, where are the domains hidden? Why do they write it this way? And how am I going to get from you know A to B? And um, so the fact that much of the, the challenge is that this is new code, this is for new code for people to actually understand, and they're not the original owners. They didn't have mm-hmm. that benefit. So that's that's one issue that we see happening that's causing a lot of uh, white dependencies are very hard to untangle. And the second is just that, you know, as you are trying to get inside the code itself and the dependencies are so entangled, there's no automated way to, to do what if analysis. If mm-hmm. I move this, I combine these, I split these, I put an API here or an entry point there, what happens? So I think that that what if mode is, is something that a, a studio and, and mm-hmm. B function helps you with that, allows you to give it a try, didn't work, go back and retry it again, reset it and try some different ways and be able to understand as I do this, am I reaching my goal? And uh, you know, exclusivity for, for our purposes is how independent these different applications, these different services, microservices or mini services are. And you can look at it as, you know, what you're trying to do is become more and more exclusive and trying to get to 100% level. And it's a goal-directed thing, you're kind of looking at, if I do this, will I get more and more exclusive, like lose those dependencies and create a more independent service that can become a, a microservice that can operate on an independent level. So without all the dependencies I've had. Mm-hmm. So having that visualization, being able to understand it from a dependency perspective, and look at it from an architectural point of view is important. You know, one of the insights and kind of the intellectual property elements, the aha moments for me is understanding how we use graph machine learning. And graph machine learning builds a graph where you look at communities of activity. And those communities of activity, those, those graphs are dependency graphs and they have classes and memory and the different objects and Java objects in them. And as you look at those, those graphs, these communities begin to indicate potential domains and we present those up to the customer. You're looking within those domains, how, what are the dependencies, what's the degree of entanglement, how are they connected, and how can we continue to begin to separate those out? So that graph machine learning is a real key part of how AI is being deployed and, and utilized to help to enable an architect to you know better work through these issues. So it's a, an enabling technology, it's, it's assisting the architect. Sometimes very simple architecture, if we get it right the first time, but a lot of it's around, here's a potential architecture. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you like to move forward with this? Based, yeah, yeah. based on the data science used, yeah. Yes, very much so. So as we build the graph, we present it to the customer, it becomes m- much more possible. And, and it's a catalyst for moving forward. I've talked about that several times. Now, many times these projects are stuck. Smart mm-hmm. people, they know what they want to do. They just can't get from get through that process and it's taking too long. So sometimes it's just being able to see it, have some suggestions, be able to do the what ifs, and now being able to visualize, ah, that's kind of what I thought, but I never saw that. I never see my application from this perspective. Right. And that's and that's got to be one of the more aha moments too for um, for our architects is being able to visualize it, 
try things out, look at it from this architectural dependency perspective, and then have the underlying automation that can then enable you to try things out and you know put your architectural imprint on top of it in addition with the AI that's helping you with it. So with, with all of that in mind, it seems like a modernization project doesn't have to take forever. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that's that's actually something we saw in our recent survey. The average mm -hmm. modernization initiative was 16 months with a yeah. uh, large minority going over two years. And mm -hmm. I believe the cost, the average cost of this project was, uh, or these projects is one and a half million dollars. Uh, and yep. considering nearly 80% of them fail, that's mm -hmm. that's an expensive endeavor to be unsuccessful with in the end. So yeah. why doesn't modernization take forever anymore, <laughs> let's say? Yeah. Well, I think we um, allowed the six myths before we talked about you know having the data, being data-driven, planning in advance, having automation to enable you to accelerate through the process. So assessment and clear planning is actually very critical. We think that's a, a big first step and a best practice is going to help accelerate pra the practices and also get more successes. So if you know what you're doing in advance, you have a clearer path to get done and be successful at it. The lack of success in this area is many things, many projects are just stalled or they people give up, they do the migration or lift and mm -hmm. shift. So we've run into many cases where it didn't take 16 months, it didn't take two years, it's taking forever. There's an infinite right. project that's happening here and there's no end in sight. So the rescue or the relief comes from having the visibility, the tools, and the actionability within that process mm -hmm. and planning it through and having kind of a, a clear way to bust the pattern that's been happening of these failures and ability to predict cleanly how long it's going to take, how much time is it going to take, or what I'm going to do. So plan in advance, have the tools, you know, use a common platform that can assess and modernize and kind of embrace that process. Um, and then in some ways, try it out, trust it, build a factory around this and some some mm -hmm. core competencies and, and kind of get the flow going. So I think that's the, you know, it's a, there's a lot of fatigue. There's a failure fatigue element here that mm. you run into is that I've tried it several times. That's where the skepticism may come from. Um, but the relief and the ability to kind of move forward really comes from having the data, having a clear plan something that you hadn't seen before, then using tools and techniques that are, are new and modern to get it, help to take what you think is right, you know, maybe change your mind on you know, how to, what the perspective should be, but also then it helps to clear up, you know, ah, that's what I thought. I had an mm -hmm. intuition that that's how it looked, or I had no idea. I think we see that happen in mm -hmm. all cases, that there's some, yes, that's what I was thinking, that that was where the service should have been, but I couldn't find it, or I had no idea that's how it was written. That's new information to me. And all that can happen at the same time. And that, that's, a, that's a, it's a, a wonderful thing to see. And that's kind of the, the relief we're, we're providing for architects in the process. So. Hmm. Well, that, that sums it up very nicely. So we'll add the uh, seven myths of monoliths into the, uh, the episode notes so that people can uh, listen to those parts individually. Uh, sure. Any final comments or ideas to share, Bob? Yeah, well, I, I'd say that you know, the call to action is to you know, jump into this. Don't fear. Don't let failure, previous failures you know, bring you down. If you're an architect, CTO, have your team you know, look at Assessment Hub as a, as a free trial for one app. 
give it a try, understand, you know, that gives you a, a taste of how we're doing analysis from a complexity perspective, from a risk of technical debt, it can actually show you a bunch of classes, really gets you started. And there's no reason not to give that a try. And I think that's a that's what we're trying to do is get more people to understand the process, uh, the techniques. Um, and from there, if if you do have a monolith you're you're stuck with, you're looking for help, either you're a an end user, you're an architect, or maybe you're a system integrator and you have a project you're trying to work through and you need to need the help and need the acceleration for that. And these are all use cases that we work with. And uh, so um, excited to kind of help people through all these these myths and continue to bust them down one by one. And uh, we look forward to working with you on it. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I'll just add that if you'd like to start busting some of your own myths around your monoliths that you've got at home, or <laughs> you can visit vfunction.com slash trial. That will send you to a landing page where you can get a free license of vfunction assessment hub. That's good for a year and for one app. So Bob, it was a great conversation. I always learn a lot when I talk to you. Uh, thanks so thanks work. for joining us and we'll be signing off now. Thanks and we'll, we'll talk to you all soon. Bye-bye.